at this time, we are providing alternate activities. We have emailed our membership about this earlier, um, but we are providing alternate activities for our younger children. Uh, Parents, I would recommend if you have children, uh, certainly elementary ages, um, this would probably be inappropriate. Um, If they're seventh grade and up, it's your call, but I would recommend them sitting in here. Um, I just remember what I knew at seventh grade, and that was a little bit after Abraham. Um, and things have changed a little bit since then. Those of you are older than me, then you grew up in the days of Noah. Um, so this is uh, one of those times where um, kind of did a, a gut check with my wife and said, I don't know if I've got the guts to talk about <laughs> what I need to talk about on Sunday. Um, just to, you know, something, something a little disconcerting having to talk about some of the things that Scripture talks about uh, with folks who are old enough to be your grandparents. Um, it, it's just a little, little awkward. Um, but nonetheless, it's here. And I just want to make this, uh, this statement, though. Uh, just, I want to commend uh, Troop 347, uh, the Boy Scout Troop 347. Uh, that is uh, McHugh's, Robert McHugh. Uh, his scout project, his uh, Eagle Scout project, if I understand, was to uh, work in the playground, and they have created a whole new playground for us. So if you notice that on the annex side there, uh, just a a beautiful facility that he and I think about 24 others all worked in together. Some of you may have been helping and supporting uh, that, their troop, uh, but him and Keith, their dad, their their mom, uh, Vicky and Kelly, they all got into it with, I think a couple of Zeckman boys helped out with that, and Chris Carmon came over, and the rest of the Boy Scout troop, and so I just encourage you to You'll see it as you walk out the door. It's, it's a beautiful work, so I appreciate you guys doing that. It's a good job. All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, we're going to look at verse 14. Um, I know realistically I probably don't have to do an introduction. Um, you're already interested. Uh, just all the disclaimers I've been putting out there, kind of, kind of interested. Um, so I think when I read the Ten Commandments to you, as we get to the Seventh Commandment, um, it, it, it should be obvious what we're talking about. And, and I want to go about this two ways. There's, there's really two main points to this this passage. So if you're going to write down points, uh, we're simply going to talk about what God's design for marriage and sex is. Uh, with all the Ten Commandments, you've got the prohibition, but what's stated within or implied within it is also the reinforcement. Uh, there is a prohibition because God wants to wants you to know something, to know the value of something. So we're going to start with the positive, and then the simply, what is not God's design for marriage and sex? And so it's just going to be a, we're going to look at both sides. And that's just going to how, how we divide this up and, and look at this together. Um, and, and so... Uh, I pray that this will be beneficial to you, um, that God will uh, cause you to think. Uh, I've certainly been thinking through uh, some of what I've learned this past week, and uh, as well as maybe create some discussions, which is why we don't want some of the younger children, because you don't want to have those discussions with them yet, um, but also that it will build faith. And marriage is about that. Marriage is about building faith and love. Uh, and we're going to talk about how, how that may work uh, together, uh, 
as we look, I, I think I've been pastoring, preaching now for 14 years, and I've been amazed with the differences of just how I have to deal with marriages and pre-marriage counseling. When I first started, the big issue was how do you counsel divorce and remarriage issues? Um, and honestly, there were a lot of folks that I, I did not marry because they, uh, because of the conditions they came from and, uh, and the remarriage issue they were seeking and, and outside of biblical grounds for that. Now, the number one issue, I, I turn away more couples who want me to marry them, not because of divorce and remarriage, but because of living together, uh, cohabitating. Um, and I, I just state, well, one of the things, if you want me to marry you, is that you don't practice premarital sex. Uh, and that, <laughs> the guys, you know, they said, so that's it, you know. Uh, I, I turn, turn away a lot, or they turn me away because of that. Um, and I want to talk to you about why. Why do I make that statement? And for you parents who have children who are getting to that age, understand that. Don't be surprised if you ask me to marry them and you know they're in that situation when I say, no, we're not, I'm I'm not marrying them uh, until they look seriously at the word of God. Um, Because I'm not just doing a wedding ceremony. Uh, As a pastor, I want to build a marriage uh, and do my part in that. And and this is a a, a big uh, ingredient in that. So the median age of marriage in 1950 was 23. That was the median age. Uh, in 2003, it was 27. I would say it's probably even more now, closer to 28, 29 um, at, at this point. Uh, for women, it was 20 in 1950. And I know plenty of folks that were married earlier than that uh, to more like 25 and later now. Uh, in 2006, National Public Radio said that 80% uh, were sexually active by 20. 80% were sexually active by age 20. I remember even as growing up, even in seventh grade, uh, I was aware uh, of folks who were uh, sexually active. Um, And and so this is hitting us earlier and earlier in our life. And so uh, only 20% of women were virgins by marriage, uh, by the time they were married. And cohabitation, living together, increased 72% between 1990 and 2000. And it's gone even more uh, since then. So are people waiting to get married because they want to make sure they understand marriage? Are people waiting to get married partly because, well, they want money, they, want, they, got, they don't have time for it? I think part of the reason people are waiting to get married because they don't know why. Why should I practice marriage? Why should I go down that way when I've got all the benefits of what I might want in marriage already in my single life? We are active sexually. Why get married? Okay? And I think that's a, a question that's on people's minds that they're, they're thinking through. And, they're, and the answer is, well, I'm just not going to get married until well, someone's really special coming into my life. All right? Uh, so I just want to talk about that a little bit using Scripture. So Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we're going to read all the Ten Commandments or up to the part that we've covered so far. So we'll start with verse 1 and we'll go to verse 14. Let's stand as we read this together. Is that getting hot in here or is it just me? <laughs> I don't know. Just feeling it. Yeah, it's getting warm. All right. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You may be seated. In Leviticus, God elaborates on this, especially in chapter 20 through 22, about all the sexual practices that were to be prohibited. But it all goes back to the book of Genesis. So when God introduces this idea of the Ten Commandments and not committing adultery, it was echoing his work in the creation account in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Interesting, when Jesus comes on the scene and questions come to him concerning marriage and divorce, he goes back to the same passages in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so when folks say, well, you know, Jesus never really spoke about homosexuality, I would say he did when he went back to Genesis chapter 2 regarding questions of sexuality and divorce. He put his stamp on the approval of God's creation account and how mankind uh, were to be created and as well as the families to be reproduced. So let me just read some of these passages to you. In Genesis 1.28, after God made uh, man in his own image, making them male and female, interesting that he made them in his image by making them male and female, there's something relational about God that's reflected in mankind needing a woman in relationship to him. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the flesh of the sea, of the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so there's this wedding ceremony that takes place, so to speak, that God says, you are now married. I will bless you. Be fruitful and multiply as you go throughout your life. Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25, acknowledgement of mankind, a woman made of man, He says, God says to man, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, let me just kind of put a footnote. Who's God talking to here? Is he talking to Adam and Eve? Does he have a mom and dad? He's not talking to them. He's talking to all those who will come after him. He says, I want you to remember this. There's a point in time when you leave your parents and you cleave to your spouse. You will become one. And verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's important. They were naked, and they were not ashamed. Just write that down in your notes for a second. I'm going to come back to that in a little while. Interesting, when sin comes in, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, we see some results. They, they eat of the fruit, they disobeyed God. Then verse 7, Genesis 3, then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Here's what I want you to remember. And God's ideal, a man and a woman are to be with one another without any physical barriers and in that state to do so without shame. But when sin comes in, shame follows soon thereafter. And so there is now a reluctance even to bear ourselves before man and wife that is also reflected in how we relate to God. And so instead of bearing our souls and bearing who we are before one another and before God, our main strategy is covering ourselves up, hiding ourselves. And we hide ourselves before our mate. We create all kinds of strategies to do that. We call it sense of humor. We call it avoidance. We call it all kinds of different things. And we do the same toward God as well. Okay? We, that's why one of the first things that's needed for us to get right with God is what? We confess our sins. We are exposed, vulnerable before our God. So just understand that the enemy to intimacy is sin. And the pathway to intimacy is actually being rightly related to God according to the creation account. Now, that, with that basis, let's go back and consider what is God's design for marriage and sex. He says simply, thou shalt not commit adultery. And in that word adultery, uh, it is specifically referring to the sexual act of marriage. Okay? Uh, and so that's why we're going to be talking about what we're talking about. Um, it, it's especially addressed. Now, if you study the Bible, you're going to find that there's various places throughout the Bible where intimacy between a man and a woman is commanded, where it was, in fact, uh, sought out to be enjoyed and delighted in. In fact, the Puritans, who were uh, known for their being saturated with the scriptures, uh, had such sermons that would, would cause folks later on in the post-Victorian era to blush. In fact, there was one person, uh, Evan Morgan, who was in the, working in Yale that wanted to print some of the Puritan sermons in 1950 in the Yale Review, but they were censored in 1950 because of the graphic nature of the Puritan sermons. Now, your historian teachers did not tell you that when they talked about being Puritans. All right? Um, what we understand as Puritan is actually more Victorian and prude uh, the Puritans even had a, a system where in their government, if a wife was complaining to the elders that her husband was not uh, fulfilling his, his sexual obligations, they could put him in the stocks publicly. <laughs> Puritans, okay? Puritans are known for being saturated with the scriptures. Now, let me just tell you where they come up with such thoughts like this. Well... One, like what we've read in Genesis, um, we see this in Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed, specifically referring to the sexual acts of marriage, be uh, undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So for those who have wondered, well, is it okay to cohabitate, to live together? I would say Hebrews 13, verse 4 says very clearly that it is something that is in marriage. Anything else outside of that is something that God judges. you got a whole book in the Bible. Song 
of Solomon that is dedicated in, in, to bringing out the, the sexual relationships between a man and a woman. It involves romance, involves very physical things mentioned in that book. And so you got a whole book in the Bible that is dedicated to that point in, in bringing this out. Ephesians 5, verse 31 to 32. It's an interesting passage here. Paul brings up again Genesis 2. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Now notice this. The mystery is profound, for I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay. In the Bible, not only do you have things like Proverbs chapter 5, where it commands the husband to delight and the wife uh, of their youth, and referring to her physical anatomy, and says, be intoxicated with her, take delight in this. And so there's commands uh, of a somewhat erotic nature uh, in Proverbs 5. This is, this is a part of life. Delight in it. Know this, but it's in the marriage. But then he says in Ephesians 5, 31, 32, there's something about marriage that is tied to mankind and God. There's something about marriage that is tied to a relationship that God is doing with us. And I would just argue with you that even the physical act of marriage is a metaphor of what God is doing and wants to do in the believer's life. You think, oh, Pastor, you might need to break that down just a little bit. Um, so let me, let, me, let me talk about this. In Exodus chapter 6... Uh, God is giving the, the covenant, all right? And he's done on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and you've got the glory of God over the mountain. You've got a thick cloud over that mountain. But in Exodus chapter 6, you've got some interesting phrases, like God saying to the people, I will bring you out, I will rescue you, I will redeem you, I will take you to be mine. Now, that sounds great for us, but we, we may lose something there in the translation because we're not Hebrews and we don't understand the marriage aspects of Hebrews. These words that God were using were terms employed in marriage. I will take you to be mine. I will redeem you. I, I will set you apart for this. And then this thick cloud is, is something similar to what you even see Hebrews do today with a prayer shawl uh, over the heads of those who are making a vow to one another that there is this glory of God above us, that we are underneath him. And so you've got this, this marriage or this, this covenant that has a lot of the pictures of, of marriage Vows given between God and mankind. Now, in John 14, 2, this is a great verse that we often mention to one another, especially as we get close to dying and thinking about this. He says, um, I'm going to, in my father's house, there are many rooms, or some translation says many mansions, it's rooms, there are many rooms, uh, and I'm going to go. But if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a really powerful promise to us. But it's also a lot more to that. Again, it captures some of the marriage terminology between a man and a wife. Let me, let me explain this to you. Uh, in the wedding, the Jewish customs, uh, the prospective bridegroom would take the initiative. It would always start with them and travel to the father's house uh, of the home of the prospective bride. And so consider how Christ left his father's house and came to earth to gain a bride for himself. But the father of the girl would then uh, negotiate with the, the prospective bridegroom uh, about a price for purchase. Uh, and when the bridegroom paid the purchase price, then the marriage covenant was then established. Legally, they were married at that point, 
and they were regarded as husband and wife, even though there had not been any kind of physical union uh, between them. Now, I think about 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, in reference to sexual activity. He says, what? You should not be with prostitutes. You should not be with these. Do you not know that you've been bought with a price? Isn't it interesting that he uses that in regarding sexual sins? He says, you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. And the Spirit of God dwells within you. The purchase price of Jesus Christ. Now, the moment the covenant was established, the bride was declared set apart exclusively to the bridegroom. The groom and the bride then drank from a cup, which uh, signified the betrothal benediction, and it symbolized the relationship that's been established. And isn't it interesting when Jesus says in the Last Supper, this is a new covenant that I make with you, and he has you drink the cup, symbolizing the marriage communion that's taken place in this new covenant. After the covenant was in effect, the groom would then leave the home of the bride and go back to his father's house. And he would remain there for a period of, of sometimes 12 months. Why? I'm going to go. And if I go, I'm going to go and prepare a room in my father's house. And so it was the father who would inspect it to see to the son whether or not the room was ready. And so when the, when the room met the father's approval... Then he would say to the groom, okay, you may go get your bride. Now, all during that time, the bride was using that time to prepare herself for mere life. Uh, just as now, the bride, the church, the people of God is to be preparing themselves, setting themselves apart for God's uh, glory. God sending pastors and teachers to equip them, to help them in that role. Now... When the groom comes, the best men, male escorts, will leave the groom's father's house, usually at night, and would have a torchlight procession to the home of the bride. Interesting, the Bible talks about Jesus coming back for his church with angelic hosts surrounding him. The bride was expecting her groom to come, but never knew exactly when. So the groom's arrival would be preceded by a shout. Think about that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, that we will hear this trumpet sound and the shout of the Lord when he returns. The groom would then receive the bride with her female attendants and would return to his father's house, reminding us of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14 and 17, where the church is caught up with the Lord in the air to go back to their home. And then the bride and groom would enter the bridal chamber and the privacy of the place would have physical union for the first time thereby consummating the, mar- the marriage. Interesting, when we go to the book of Revelation, read in the end, how does God describe the union of the church with Christ? He calls it a marriage feast. A marriage feast. What I'm just presenting to you is what Paul already said in Ephesians 5. This is a mystery, but the church is represented in marriage. That the marriage itself is a historical mystery metaphor of the church relationship with God. And I'm just going to argue with you that the physical act itself is not just for your pleasure. God made it for your pleasure, but it's also made to glorify God and to teach us what God is doing. Now, um, (laughs) there's a lot said in this, um, but it helps me understand. Generally speaking, the male, the man, generally speaking, wants to have sex more than the woman. And I think about this, 
and allows that man to have initiative, to love and romance the wife, to serve them. They're motivated. Okay? They're motivated to do that. But also, what if I think about that, how God made us? Does it speak to what God wants to do with us? How he longs for us, desires us that it flows from the Father, flows from God and his relationship with us. Now, we read this and, and we hear, okay, there's something more to marriage here and the physical act that is, is to be within the, the realm of marriage. And so I read this passage and it says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. I just want to present to you that sex within marriage is God's gift by his design, meant for your pleasure, meant for the glory of God. And that just revolutions my life. To think that this is worship. This is part of worship also. To do all to the glory of God. But it has some beautiful benefits to it. It has a softening influence in our life. It gives us, allows us to open up and to trust a person. It's why it's natural for folks to feel jealous after this physical act. Because your heart is opened up and your heart just rebels against allowing this person to go with whomever because your heart's tied to them. Now, let me just say, and I've said this from the beginning, there is a reason why God says, I have say in your life. There is a role for his law. Okay? One, we are saying, God, I trust you. And, and if we allow a physical trainer yell and scream at us and make us do things that cause great pain because we believe that physical trainer will help us physically, then how come we don't do that with God? When we allow God to cross our will, we talked about what obedience is versus cooperating. Obedience is to say, you know, God... I allow you to cross my will. I allow you. Otherwise, you're just cooperating. We like to treat God like a, a driver's ed teacher. Remember a driver's ed teacher? They have special cars. What's special about these cars? They got an extra set of brakes. And, uh, you know, I, 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 they work pretty good. Uh, I got them tested out when I was uh, driving, and, and the guy just, boom. I was like, what happened? And the car just stopped on me. I said, what? And he just goes, what are you doing? You know, uh, we want to treat God like that. We want to say, okay, God, I will get in the car with you, but let me have an extra set of brakes. And God, I will take you where you, where you want me to go. But, but rest assured, at any moment in time, I can stomp on the brake because I don't want to go where you have me to go. That's why he says in the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Take the brakes out of your car. Obedience doesn't come with conditions. Either he is God or he's not. And one of the things I've presented to you is that the Ten Commandments from, from, from the first commandment on is now showing us where we have our idols at. Why is this in here? One, to talk about who God is, what marriage is, and the gift of sex, but also to identify in our heart what is a God. When we say, if I don't have sex in my life, I won't be able to live. Or if I don't have romance in my life, I won't be able to live. And I don't care what God says. I'm going to find it one way or the other. You know what we've done? We've taken God and his commands and we threw them on the floor so we can exalt our own desire for sex. 
What we have is not a sex problem, but we have a worship problem. We have a worship problem. There's a a book called uh, Sexual Detox or Sex Detox by Tim Chalice. Um, It's one of the better books I've read. Because what he says is it doesn't matter all the little checks we give ourselves. And it's good to have some checks, accountability partners and, and tools like that to help us. But if our heart is exalting sex over God, then we've got a spiritual problem. And it's never going to get fixed until we talk about the sin that's in our heart and how we're exalting it over God. So, you know, you hear things, some, some myths like, well, you know, we're most free when we don't have rules. We don't have restraints. I mean, who are you, pastor? You just tell me this stuff. You tell me what the Bible says. Don't you know that I can be really free if you're not here making me feel guilty about this? I would just want to say that we don't live by desires. We live by design. We don't live by desire. We live by design. If you take that same approach of whatever my heart wants to do, let me do it. And you take that to eating... You can do that, but you will not know freedom. If you take it to its conclusion, you will be hooked up to an IV somewhere and you won't even be able to leave your room if you just follow your desires. It's destructive in its nature. A fish will live most free if it follows the design that God made for it and stays in the water. It goes in the water, it can, it can swim around all day. But the moment that fish says, this is hampering my soul, my heart, I want to jump out of the water, and it can do that, but there will be no freedom there. It will die a quick death. So we live not by desires. We live by design. And it's popular to say, just follow your heart. I mean, it just feels good to say that, doesn't it? Just, you know, if you just follow your heart, your heart won't lead you astray. You know you'll do your best. And if you do these things, your heart's not in it. And I understand that. If your heart's not in it, then it's hard to do some of these things. But I'm going to just give you a word of warning. If you follow your heart, your heart will take yourself down a destructive path. And we, we hear this even as children when you got an aerial, when you're saying, I just want to walk. You know, I don't want to be a mermaid anymore. And just follow your heart and everything goes well. You know, and and we get taught this early on. Just follow your heart. I just write down Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 17, 9. Your heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? I read that and then someone tells me, follow my heart. My heart deceives me all the time. That's why God says... Let me just give you some things that will bring you freedom. So, we've talked a little bit about what is God's design in marriage and sex. That is actually a physical reminder of what God wants to do spiritually in our life. And I'll talk about that more at the end. Physical reminder of what God wants to do for us spiritually. It is meant to be enjoyed. It is a gift. It's not just for procreation. Otherwise, we'd probably just have a desire once or twice in our life. Um, But there's more to that, isn't there? It's something to be enjoyed. Now, 
What is not God's design for marriage and sex? Now, when he says, thou shalt not commit adultery, adultery is specifically referring to uh, to sex outside of marriage, okay? Sex outside of marriage. Um, So, um, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, how God created the world, one man, one woman. God speaks to that and says, this is how I created it. We are to be one woman type of man, one man type of woman, and that we are to uh, allow ourselves to be directed toward one another. Now, we go to the New Testament, and it uses another word. It uses the word pornonia. Okay? You recognize that word? Uh, and it becomes a very general term referring to any sexual immorality. And it covers a whole range of subjects. Whereas fornication speaks specifically about sex before marriage, adultery specifically, sex outside of marriage. Uh, the New Testament also includes the word pornonia, which covers any sexual immorality, basically any sexual activity outside of marriage, becomes lumped in with this term pornonia. Uh, so so what, what, is, what is out of bounds, so to speak? What is not God's design for marriage and sex? Well, any sex outside of his original design. So when we go to Matthew 5, verse 27, Jesus uses this term to refer to even thought life. Thought life. You have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard that, right? I just read it to you. He said, this is the Ten Commandments. You've heard this. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I preached on this text about four or five years ago. And uh, what he's saying simply is, is that I could certainly say to you, pornography, men and women, is not a gray area. All right? It's very clear in the scripture. Pornography for men and women is sin. It's not an area we go in and expect that God will be approved of that. And so we have in our mind, okay, I should not look on these, these sites, on these, uh, these images, these pages and magazines. And by the way, pornography is so much more out there than when I was a child. And you guys know that. It is accessible to you in the privacy of your room. You don't even have to feel any shame. And by the way, why did you feel shame? Because it's sin. Going back to Genesis chapter 2. But now it's right there in our own room. It can go with you everywhere you go. But let me just say this. What Jesus is saying is not just pornography. Because some of us think, well, I don't do that. I'm all right. It is having pornographic images in your mind. Okay? It is fantasizing visually, thinking about someone else, either in your past and your present, or some fantasy man or woman in your life. And allowing your mind to think of sexual activity with them. Jesus is saying, that is adultery in your heart. God has said that marriage is to be of an exclusive nature. Sex is to be an exclusive, intimate nature between one man and woman because that's how God wants us to be exclusively to Him. 
I mean, God's not okay with the fact that we'll say, well, well God, I'll worship you, but I'm also going to worship two or three or just however I feel at the time. God says, no, thou shalt have no other gods before me. We don't do that with one another. And so Jesus is saying right here in your mind. So we read this and we get kind of concerned because it says in verse 29 that, that is to treat this with such extreme measures that I'm to pluck out my eye and cutting off things. Verse 30. And then it talks about going to hell. That's a little unnerving. What, what is he saying? First of all, if you go blind and you cut off your arms, does it solve the issue of lust? That'd be a little of a, a little bit of a bummer. Pluck out your eye, cut off your arms, and think, oh my, I still have the problem. Okay? So what he's talking about here is go through extreme measures. Extreme measures to take care of sin. But it's not just your eye you pluck out. You notice here at the end it says, it says, talking about going to hell. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. And you think, well, Lord, surely, you know, if I'm just struggling with sin, you're not going to send me to hell, are you? I mean, that's not what I see in the scripture. What he's talking about here is that if you go down this road and you continue in this way, knowing what the Ten Commandments say, know what the Word of God says, you are seeking satisfaction outside of God, and you are saying to God, you know what, I will follow you, but don't take this away from me. I have to have this activity in my life, or else my life will not be fulfilled. Guess what you've done? You've made sex your God. You've made sex your God. And that's why Jesus says, if you go down this way and you think it's okay, you're going to be bitterly disappointed at the end. Here's what you need to know. Sex is addictive. It's addictive and addicting. I remember even as a teenager, my dad, you know, having one of those talks, and uh, he said, this is not something you play around with. Because in my mind, it was something you play around with. It's a curiosity factor. It was just, I just want to know what it's like. And dad was saying, you need to understand, it is addictive in its nature. You think you can just do it one time. You think you can control this. You cannot control this. And so God is saying, I have this area of your life, and I want it to be unleashed on your mate. And I want you to be addicted to the love relationship of your wife because that in itself glorifies me. But if you take that and get addicted to images, to your own mind, to yourself, to some other person outside of marriage, then you are outside of God and you have a serious idolatry problem. Interesting, Proverbs 5, verse 21, uh, referring to uh, commanding a man and a woman to, to enjoy one another. In the end, Proverbs 5, 21, he talks about beware of committing adultery. And he says, for, it says, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. It's, it's interesting what, that, what he's saying. Literally, the word for ways there is trodden path. For man's trodden paths are before the eyes of the Lord. So it's not just you know, one little walk, but it's a trodden path. It's a rut. God sees the ruts of your behaviors, the ruts of your thought life. He is aware of these. And interesting enough, that word for ponder is actually the word make level. God will make level your paths. For those of us who are in addictive cycles of sin, I just want to tell you that God's grace, His power, is able to set your heart free. 
But the thing is, we don't want it. We'll say, well, God, you know, I don't want to sin, but I don't mind being tempted a few times. And we go into this thinking, well, I wonder why I keep sinning. Because you want to. You want to keep being tempted and tantalized with images or with uh, relationships or flirting or whatever it may be. And it's right there. And you're thinking, well, as long as I keep this line straight, I'm all right. But you don't. You can't do that. It has an addictive aspect to that. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. I, I kind of alluded to this earlier. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be listen, dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, boy, both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In other words, he's acknowledging sexual activity, sexual immorality can be dominated, can be addictive. And you need to know your body was not made to fulfill that, to, to fulfill every sexual desire that comes in your life. If you don't know how to resist temptation, you won't be able to walk with the Lord. Very simple. You're not made for these things, but you're made for the Lord. In verse 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price to glorify God in your body. God has bought you. He's married you. He has you for himself. And he says, I want you to understand that the sexual immorality is a sin against your body that I have indwelt. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. I remember as a young person asking, what is God's will for my life? Someone threw this at me. I said, oh my. For this is the will of God. You wonder? Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now, no, no, it's not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. If you are consumed by lust, if you're driven by lust, lust if whatever demand that lust comes in, you answer, then you are like those who do not know God. There is no governing love of affection in your heart and life. Verse 6, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord, now listen, the Lord is avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gave his Holy Spirit to you. Now, you can say, Pastor, you're just, you're messed up. You're not with the times. Maybe not. I like to go much older, 2,000 years and before. I'm not saying this. God is saying this. And when in your heart, in your life, you say, you know what? I don't care. What does a little lusting do in my life? Is who is it going to hurt? I'm going to say, first of all, you're hurting yourself infinitely, internally, when you say, I don't care. And God says, I bought you. The Spirit of God is in you. I've bought you for myself, and you do this? No. You're not to sell your heart and your soul out like that. uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, the grace of God argues with us, teaches us, 
So it says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To love self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for, God, for good works. The grace of God is working in our lives and will work in our life to teach us how to love God more than lust. Now, let me just talk about how that works. You know, in Genesis 2, we talked about how we are to be naked, or in the original design, man and woman are to be naked before one another, husband and wife, and not to be shamed. Sin comes in, and now shame comes. God takes us, and by his Holy Spirit, he convicts us of our sin. And there's a moment in time where spiritually you feel disrobed before him. And you're hurt, you're vulnerable, and God says to you, with, with everything out there being exposed before God in your nature spiritually, God says to you, I love you. I love everything about you, but I want to make you mine and make you like me. And in that moment where shame normally enters in, spiritually before God, there is an openness, a love, a forgiveness, a at-home attitude. When God says, I'll make you mine. But you'll say, but, but, but Lord, <laughs> look at me. I'm ugly. I, I'm not... I'm not how I want to be presented. This is, this is who I am. And you're not seeing my image. You see who I am. And God says, yeah, I knew that. And knowing that about you, I sent my son to die for you. And before God now, because we know that God has seen us with all of our warts, all of our frailties, our sin, our selfishness, God loves us. We are open before God. I said, God, this is who I am. Buys us by his son. And the spirit of God enters into our presence. Enters into our spirit. And says, we are now one. When God sees Jesus, he sees Jared. When God sees Jared, he sees Jesus. That's what it means for the sin to be laid upon Jesus and the, and the righteousness of Jesus to be laid upon me. That when he sees one, you know, don't you hear some of these old couples, you say, when you see one, you see the other? When God sees you, he sees Jesus. He can't see it separate. We are one and the physical act demonstrates that and so now when i go before a husband or for a wife or when we enter into that marriage scene we know that we're right with god and we are saying to this person now i've got a lot of fears here remember what god told me about trying to get his honeymoon body together it's like what 
So I'm, I'm going to be before someone. I, I got to get it right. And I'm going to just say to you, you can't have a honeymoon body before God. You can't have a honeymoon soul before God. He sees you as you are. And knowing that when you are before someone and as a husband or as a wife there before you, you say, I am here because God placed me here. You're there because God placed you there. And we are disrobed before one another. And we're not perfect. But God loves me. And I'm going to love you in the way that he loves me. And you become one. You're vulnerable. You're, it's exclusive. It's unique. That physical act is to be an expression of exclusive intimacy, being at one. So, let me just say something here. Apply it to some who are not married, some who are married. When you are entering into a physical union with someone and they're not your spouse it's like you're saying to them i want to be one with you in this way physically but i reject being union one with you in all the other ways that's like a bulimic me eat some food let me enjoy this part of it but i don't want the rest of it entering my body let me regurgitate it out So when we say that to one another, before marriage, outside of marriage, it is dehumanizing to yourself, dehumanizing to the person around you, and it's extremely selfish. And it reflects sex being your God and not God. So I would just present to you that the current society, the culture of what we live in, what we breathe in, is one in which there's multiple partners, multiple acts with the person, and it's normal and understood that we are to engage in sexual activity before we get married. I would present to you is nothing but dehumanizing to your heart and making you cold and insensitive to what the physical act is supposed to do when it's supposed to open you up, supposed to soften you up, but then they burn you, they leave you, and you realize, I can't go down that road anymore. So then when marriage is there, then the physical act no longer is able to do that because you've calloused it so much that you don't understand the softening influence of the physical act. That's the air we breathe. Multiple partners, numerous times. Because after all, we've got to practice. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God says. I know more about this than God does. That's why I've got to practice. That's great as long as you don't believe there's a God who made you and that you're going to go to him. Some will say, well, okay, the Bible says don't commit adultery. So I'll make sure we don't actually go through the act. Let me just hover around that area. And the question always comes, how far can I go? I mean, pastor can can, you know, can I kiss? Can I can I hold hands? Can I french kiss? Can I can I touch different parts of the body? What where's the line at? <laughs> I said you got it all wrong. You're not looking for a line. You're looking for Christ. Where's Christ at? That's the aim. That's what we're seeking toward. And I would just present to you if it's a sexual nature, then it's a no. If it's a sexual nature, it's pornea. It's outside 
of what God wants. And that includes in our brain too. If it's a sexual nature, it's outside and it's undermining God. It's undermining marriage. It's undermining yourself. So some would say, well, uh, you know, where's the line of effect, affection between affection and, and uh, sexual affection? <laughs> you know. Really, don't, do I need to spell that out? You know when your brain starts. For some of us, you know, help my hand. That's <laughs> like, uh, you know, you know where your brain starts this at. But I would have a hard time justifying French kissing. When I see this in the Proverbs referring and Song of Solomon referring to sexual nature, I'd say, I don't think so. I don't think so. girl the guy may say to you i love you if he loves you he will protect you and not use you someone said well you know we're engaged surely it's okay is that marriage if it's not marriage then it's sexual nature outside of marriage but we really love each other well i'm glad you do but it doesn't mean that love is now exalted above god because if you're exalting love above god then that's not love. It's selfishness. And you say, but everybody's doing it. Yeah, I've already explained that. Everybody is doing it. And it's the air that we breathe. That doesn't mean it's right. We're to breathe a different air of a spiritual nature. Here's a line I want you to remember. Unless you know how to be naked and unashamed before God. Until you know the love of God before the gospel. Then to be naked before someone else will be a disgusting thing or a consuming thing. Let me say that again. Unless you know how to be naked and unashamed before God. Until you know the love of God before the gospel. Then to be naked before someone else will be a disgusting thing are a consuming thing. Until God maintains the right relationship, will you know the joy of the Lord? And I'm going to tell you, yes, sexual desires is a strong, but I'm going to tell you there is a stronger desire of when you see the beauty of Jesus Christ, what God is doing and has done in my life, in your life, when you get consumed by that, it's amazing how the on and off switch works. I mean, if we can get folks to do this for physical activity tonight, cheesecake and ice cream, because they desire a, 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 a pause and a physical activity, they have a greater desire. And if that can happen there, how much more than when we see the beauty of who Jesus Christ is, the love of God, that he sees you naked before him and says, I love you, and you get consumed by that. It's amazing how the desires change within that. There can be done when you know how to be naked and unashamed before God. Because if you don't do that, and sex becomes either a disgusting thing, let's just not talk about that, i.e. Victorian, or it becomes a consuming thing, where it becomes your God, and it's all we talk about, i.e. today. Somewhere there is those who love God, who know the love of God, and let the love of God, an unconditional love of God, be displayed within marriage, and there within marriage, do all to the glory of God, sensitivity to your mate, 
And outside of marriage, understand that this is something that is tying to relationship between God and you. And it should not be displayed in anything but an exclusive relationship. And I would just say, for those with teenagers, this is early. I, again, I just remember in fourth grade, someone asked me if I was a virgin. And I was thinking, I'm not Mary of Christmas. You know, I'm not Virgin Mary. No, I'm not. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, that's a woman, you know. No. What, what I'm presenting to you is that this hits early. This hits early. Teach your children by example but by also before them and word what does it mean to be a follower of Christ today for some of you it may be hey go listen to that sermon others it may be let's sit down we need, we need to have a talk that's your job mom and dad it's yours to do but I assure you if you don't Others will. It will happen. And it will not be the message you want. I'm just going to invite you this this morning. Um, I invite you, you, if you're married, perhaps maybe this is something where you need to just pray before God together. You say, God, we want you to be Lord over this area of our life. This also goes toward romance, seeking that romance, affection outside of your mate. It also applies there. We go there. Perhaps if you're single, it's to say, God, I want to glorify you. If this is your will, I don't like it, but I love you. You cross my will. I obey you in this area. Give me the grace and strength to do that. I would encourage you if you're single. Do that, to make that commitment before God, because God's already made it before you. If it's your parent, maybe it's to teach your children, by example, as well as by word, what it means to have a godly marriage of love, romance with one another, affection toward one another. If it's grandparents, great-grandparents, I would counsel you, Show us how to end well. Show us how to end well. Love faithfully to the end. Not just merely get along. Not just get used to one another. But love them. Respect them. For God's sake. Show us how to do that. All the way to the end. Let's pray.